0: Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. Hey, listen, there's a couple of, uh, a couple of you would come down and pass out the um, forms for me. We're on Revelation chapter 10 tonight. A few of you guys, no one has this copy, so if you're here tonight, uh, if you're first time here, we pass out forms, uh, we fill in the blank, give you a great study guide for you to take with you and to help your study in the book of revelation uh where's cindy at oh you're in here jeremiah had a had a uh, jeremiah raise your hand at us back there brother um he's a responder and and uh reacted to a call today where a two-month-old um perished and um lost his life so let's just do this before we start can we just uh let's just bow our heads and let's just Reach our hand toward Jeremiah tonight. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come before your throne and we thank you for our first responders. We thank you for those men and women who are available and on call to uh, come to us in time of need. And we do realize, Lord, that there are times where loss is part of their daily activity, but yet there's no way that we, as your children, can be prepared for such a loss. And Jesus, I pray right now for my brother Jeremiah that you put a hedge of protection around him, be the encourager of his soul, uh, the lifter of his head. And God, we pray that you would allow him, God, to see just a moment, a glimpse into the glory that this precious child is now experiencing. God, we, we can't understand that. We can't fathom that. And so God, we do pray that you'd give him just a peace that passes understanding as well as all of those that are out there running calls uh, day and night and transporting our loved ones. God, I pray that you would touch them and may your grace be sufficient in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Praying with you, brother. We are in uh, Revelation chapter 10. Y'all bear with me. I, I, uh, I gotta be honest with you because you may look at me and think my wife punched me. She did not, but I got, uh, she has, but it's not this time. No, I'm only kidding. I uh, sprayed some cologne in my eyes, I was trying to smell good for y'all, and I sprayed it right in my eye. So we're going to see how this goes. But my eye smells good. It's really awesome. It's been a great, great day. How many of y'all had a great week? Anybody had a not-so-great week? There's a few of you. Okay. Um, we say this all the time, but I think it uh, certainly can, we can say it again, that I believe that our life shifts when we get into God's Word. I hope you believe that. Uh, I don't take what we do in here on Wednesday night lightly, uh, not say this through condemnation or judgment of any, anybody or any other house of worship, but I believe Wednesday nights are imperative to my faith journey. I hope it is for yours. I, I certainly, like you, would like to see uh, more of us be able to participate, but keep in mind we have a, a lot of adults that are over helping with Awana, and uh, praise God for that. I, I truly appreciate that more than you know, the folks that are working with our children. Um, and also Pastor Cody next door. It's a lot going on on the campus. So I'm glad you're here. I am, and I'm glad you're watching at home. And uh, I love this time together. Uh, if you are new to uh, our Wednesday nights, we do open up for questions. It is sometimes difficult because those at home can't hear what you're saying. But, uh, but I don't like giving y'all a mic because I never know what Dustin's, gonna, or what y'all are gonna say. So uh, I'm a little careful with that. But nonetheless, if y'all have questions, I will try to engage them. Uh, I do offer uh, your opinion, uh, meaning offer your involvement in your opinion as with mine. But I do lay one framework of rule is that if you do have an opinion, make sure you follow that up with a scripture, a chapter, and a verse. Uh, a mere opinion will, will not really carry us very far in this life. Uh, we can't live on a... On my grandmother told me or my daddy told me or my preacher told me. I think we have to be careful. I hope you believe that. Say amen if you believe that. We cannot live our faith based upon what we've heard. And I, listen, and I say that respectfully, but I even point that at me. Um, You know, and if there is a time where we need to challenge something, um, you know, please make an appointment. I, I will try to work it in quick as I can and uh, or give me something in writing as one did tonight and give me uh, your thoughts and I'll read it I will honestly read it I will openly read it and uh, with an open heart and I will beg God to show me truth and uh, because I think it's the truth that sets us free and so I want to be a student of God's word as well as a teacher so I want you to know that Um, but I don't take lightly what I bring to you what you're getting uh, is exhaustive I understand that I pray that you not and I even hate to say this, but I want to say it because there may be one or two, there may be many of you, but I want to say it anyway. I pray that you don't get burned out in, in studies like this because um, if, we, if we navigate through God's word in a careful manner, I assure you, you'll be blessed. You'll be changed. If we speedily go through it, and that's true with anything that we do in life, um, I think that we will be uh, shortchanged on the blessing that we get. So I'm giving you a lot of years of study in a very short time frame and so what you get is kind of an insight into where I am. It's certainly not exhaustive. It's, it, it's just kind of a medium of the road, if you will. And so I want to navigate that best I can. If you did not get a chapter 10 handout, uh, they're right down here on the front. You can come grab one if you've walked in since the guys um, handed those out. So we want to jump right in. This is not a very long chapter. Uh, and I want you to kind of put somewhere on your paper tonight that it's an interlude. It is the last interlude. Uh, there are several interludes throughout God's Word. Uh, this is one of them. There was one that we talked about around chapter 5 or 6. I can't recall right where it's at, but where it says that there was a pause in heaven for about a half an hour. You know, it was a short pause. It just kind of shows that even in the middle, and this is so profound, that uh, something's getting ready to happen. An interlude is not just a pause. But it's a transition. It's a changing of the gears as well. So I want you to be mindful of that. And I encapsulated this in this thought that I want to lay before you. I'm calling it No More Delay. God is about to uh, now unleash the finality. And you may have said, well, man, I thought that was last week. No, remember it says the worst is yet to come. And and now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of what's about to happen and how it's to unfold. But he does so, and I want you to know tonight, as I lay some of this before you, as I've tried to do every week, is there are some things we don't know. And I think that when the scripture does not tell us um, what's what's exactly written, what's exactly happening, then I think we just have to be careful not to offer too much conjecture in uh, our own thought because i think that can get a little dangerous you know the bible even says here in this book that if you add to or take away you're in danger uh and and i'm not just in danger of of being judged danger of of hell and, and 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 that that is a powerful statement that i don't take lightly so i will throw you out some hey what if uh but i will offer you hopefully some some readings. There are, at times you'll see parentheses and you'll see a person's last name. You can search that. And, uh, and that would be a person who is a theologian who writes and, and certainly has a lot more knowledge about this than I, but I, I do lay that out. And I also give you scriptures to, to back that up. So anyway, we're in revelation 10. If you're with me tonight, say hallelujah. It says, and I saw another mighty angel coming down From heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book uh, open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. It's a lot of metaphor in there, a lot of of parts to that. So I think we can unpack that here in just a moment. I'm going to read a few more verses, then we'll start. And When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Seven, of course, is number four, perfection and completion in Christ. It's very important when you see that, that, that again, now we're talking about a completion of a voice. Bringing everything now to fruition. It has not said that at this, up until this point. It did say that there was thunderings and there was lightnings and there was roarings and, and so forth and et cetera. But now he's, he's using the number seven. So anytime you see that, you can pretty much surmise from that that we're getting into a completion. We're getting into something that's bringing to an end or a, or a culmination, if I will. It says, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, it was about, I was about to write, John said, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Last week, we were talking mad about mysteries. We were talking about uncertainties and Dustin gave a thought that perhaps, uh, with, with things that Jesus, for example, not knowing the day nor the hour, he says that. And he says that in the book of Matthew, and he, that, that only the Father, that it's only the Father that knows. And of course, we know the Father and the Son are one. And, and then there's this idea that we in Christ, we can know, quote, all things. And so we see through those terminologies in Scripture that, that perhaps we find ourselves at this conundrum. So do we know all things? No, we do not. To know all things means that you're omniscient. You are not omniscient. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be living out your faith in the fullness of Christ's redemption, the Holy Spirit in you operating to the fullness, and you are still not, and nor will you ever be omniscient. You're never going to be omnipotent. You will not be omnipresent. Those are unique character traits given to God only. Now, we can see likenesses, and that there are things that we can know. And again, you have to put that in its proper perspective of, uh, if I could throw this at you, as a need-only basis, meaning what do we need to know? Um, then, and I'm going to share this with you tonight because he's laying this before us right here, that there are things we don't know. There's things we don't need to know. There's things he does, he does not want us to know. Matt brought up a point and called me, and he and I kind of shared, and I thought this was very interesting. And I had misplaced the timeline of this uh, to a point of after the resurrection. But it was not. It was before. It was before the cross when Jesus uttered those words. Remember, they were asking about, I don't know what to do with my arms, y'all. I usually carry a microphone. And I'm like going, I can probably knit. I got so much energy. Y'all just don't even know. Um, So anyway, y'all pray for a brother. They've been trying to get me to use this mic for quite some time. But anyway, we'll we'll see. Uh, Yeah, probably going to be back with a handheld next week. But anyway. I uh when you look at this text, it's it's really the disciples are are beginning to ask questions now. They've been with Jesus for some time, they've seen his miracles, they've seen what he is trying to explain to them. They they really didn't get it. In fact, even post-resurrection, if you look at historical records, the Sadducees, the um The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, Caiaphas even, there's recorded, is still arguing this idea of the temple being destroyed. They were so concerned about the physical temple that they missed everything Jesus was talking about when he said, I'll destroy the temple and in three days, I'll rebuild it. He was talking about himself. And so when we see this line of questioning, then Jesus says, basically, to culminate this, he said, look, no man knows the day nor the hour that the Son of Man will return except the Father. Now, Matt, I think Matt had one of the most profound, simple, actually, simple narratives that I think I will, I will probably use from here forward. Let's be mindful that Jesus had, according to Philippians 2, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2 tells us that though he was God, He did not, and I'm going to use layman's terms, he did not place that within his grasp, but rather humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. We cannot ever miss the fact that Jesus was fully God at the same time he was fully man. It's called hypostatic union, if you want to write that down in the margin. Hypostatic union means he's fully God, he's fully man. He has to be both for this whole thing to work. If he died only as a man, he died as a martyr. If he died, if he was only God, he couldn't have died. So he had to be both. Now, having said that, I I think, and Matt's right, I think that if you look at scripture, there's things that he says. He says, I've come to do the will of my father. That's a subservient role, yet don't miss this. He's still the father. Because he told them, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said in John 14, 6. You believe in God, believe also in me. And and then he lays out the framework of this historical wedding. In my father's house are many mansions. And he talks about going to prepare a place. All that is custom driven to this place of theological truth where he's going to prepare a place. He's coming back to receive us at where he is. We may be also. But maybe, just maybe, and what Matt was saying was that in the context of him being here on earth, operating in a subservient role only because of humility, that maybe, just maybe, he's saying, I didn't need to know in the context of my humanity. I think that is one of the most profound, because Matt, there's no question he knows now. And he could have known then. For example, could they have arrested Jesus if he operated at that moment in the Godhead? Yes or no? No. Could they have killed him ever? No. He even told them, I have come to lay down my life willingly. I love one of the gospel accounts when when they came into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him and he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And they fell back just at the power of who he was. That was one thing I don't even know, I wonder sometimes why the other writers left that out because I think that's like a celebration moment for me. That that is so profound. He just goes, I'm he, and they fall back by the glory of God. And so I feel like we can't miss that point of, 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 of reference that the things he didn't do Okay, it's, it's, it's called the doctrine of kenosis, K-I-N-E-S-O-I-S, it's kenosis. Kenosis says that he never ceased being God, he never laid aside his deity, he never ceased being the fullness of the Godhead. However, he rather chose not to utilize his godly attributes at that moment. That's how he would die. He just laid them, he laid the use of them. That word is so important. He laid the use of his godly attributes aside through humility. So maybe that's partly why he says only the father knows, not the son. Because at that point, he was operating in a sonship, a different capacity. So that we can understand what it means to subvert, to to subject ourselves to a higher authority, i.e. the Lord. Does that make sense? So I appreciate, Matt, you doing that and calling me on that because... I think that kind of was a point of contention of how we can figure out how we can know these things that God has allowed us to know, but yet there are things we don't know. There was things that Jesus said he didn't know, but we know he's all knowing. I think that's it. I think it comes from just laying aside the willingness or the need to know at that moment. Now he's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he knows all things and he is fully aware of all things. So again, just you have to understand scripture Jewish book written by Jewish authors to encapsulate Jewish culture for a Jewish audience. And we were only brought into that according to Romans, I think chapter 11, because the Jews said no to him. They didn't acknowledge him as the Messiah, so it was translated, transferred, the Abrahamic promise, covenant, unconditional, unilateral, was given to the Gentiles. I'll show you that in a moment. But I say that because now... It's, 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 we're talking about the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of this church age season that will play out. And again, another reason why we believe in a pre-trib rapture. But anyway, we'll look at that as we move forward. Let's look at the first uh, on your paper. A mighty angel comes down from heaven. Let me read that verse. It says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a white cloud or with a cloud, And a rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, here's what I wrote. Revelation 9 left off with the sounding of the six of the seven trumpets, which ushered in the end of all things. Now, instead of the seventh trumpet, we have another interlude that will actually last until Revelation 11 and 15. It's an interlude. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. These interludes serve as dramatic purposes. They serve a dramatic purpose, but also show the mercy in allowing a more opportunity for repentance. Now, this is profound to me because as we see the unfolding of Scripture, we see it through what's called a dispensation. How many of y'all remember that word? I've used it over and over and over. Dispensationalism simply says this. Some people that don't adhere to that, I don't I don't really understand because all it means is it's the way that we see history. There was a time of innocence. That's a dispensation of innocence. There was a time of law, dispensation of law, and so forth and so on. We're in the church age under the dispensation of grace, Ephesians 2 and 8. It's for by grace that you're saved. There's a point, however, that in the context of this, grace as we know it ends now the holy spirit does not end be mindful of this now because the bible says that which is restraining now from the from the antichrist from coming on the scene is going to be taken out of the way so that he can come on the scene and the question has always been posed okay so if the holy spirit quote unquote is going to be taken out of the way why is that? It's because he lives in us. But is the Holy Spirit still here, still active, and still fully alive? Absolutely. Forever and forever and forever. Okay? From eternity past to eternity future. But the again, the operational aspect through his children will be removed. Now I tell you that because when we understand interlude, we understand that even though the Holy Spirit is the wooing point of the Holy Spirit, is gonna be set aside, excuse me, set aside, then what's gonna happen is that that idea of mercy as we know it is no longer there for that time frame. That's part of his wrath. You say, Mark, can you prove that? I absolutely can. He showed grace even in the days of Noah who for 120 years preached this idea of get on the boat, get on the boat, get on, it's gonna rain and they're like, yeah, we don't even know what rain is, it's never rained. And then, and then at the end of that, when the Bible says that God shut the door to the ark, they didn't get on the ark. They got in the ark. It's a picture of getting in Christ. Any man be in Christ is a new creation, right? When that door shut, in essence, grace was over for them at that moment. Mercy was over for them in that moment. How do you know that? Can you imagine The multitude of people that wanted to get on the boat once the rain and once the subterranean waters burst forth, can you imagine then who wanted to get in the boat? Can you imagine the screams and the yellings and the beating or what have you? But it was shut, it was locked. It was showing that one moment, and we can call it a dispensation if it helps you. One moment was open, one moment it's closed, now it's over. And every single person it was not on the boat, and there was merely eight. Eight is the number from new beginnings. Perished. The say, hey, so that's not enough. Well, it happened in Sodom and Gomorrah too. All of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah sure, Lot gave a dialogue in exchange with the Lord, and said, "Hey, what if I can find this many? What if I can find this many? What if I can?" And God's basically saying, "Yeah, go ahead, go find them. I won't destroy the the unrighteous if there's righteous." It came down to the fact that even his family members weren't really locked into that what did he take out he took his wife and his two daughters and even his wife wasn't really partnered with leaving her heart was still there turning around turning into a pillar of salt but what did he do he made a way out for the righteous before he poured his wrath on them so grace was there get out but when i start pouring down this this sulfur and this rain of fire there's no hope then Remember what he told Judas? I mean, this carries on to the character of God. I don't know if you know this or not, but at the Last Supper, it's not a table like you see in, in, in the, in the uh, artist rendering of this long table with, with all these people here and, and Jesus in the middle. We do know 100% certainty that John was close to him. He leaned into him at some point. But it's actually not even like that at all. It's actually would have been shaped as a U-shape going towards you. It would have went this way and this way. There would have been two sides, and there would have been a middle. And they would not have sat behind the table. They would have lounged behind it, and the part that was the center part of the U would have been about this high off the ground where they would have brought the food and served the table. Now, why do I tell you that? Because God even gave mercy and grace to Judas Iscariot. Do you know what happened? Really, the guest of honor, if you look at the way the table would have been, Jesus wouldn't have been in the middle. He would have been on the right side of the U. Again, the U's like this, right? He would have been right here on the right side, a place of honor, and he would have been the second into the table setting. The first one, guess who it would have been? It would have been Judas. That was where the guest of honor sat. They were the last one in and the first one to leave. It's kind of like, you know, with the bride's mom, you know, the last one in next to the bride, first one out. It's the same principle. It's where it came from. So what would have happened is the table would have went this way, this way, and then this way. Jesus would have been the second place. The third would have been John and then on around perhaps Peter at the other side. And then right here would have been Judas. And he, and he basically did something. He said, uh, one of you will betray me. Remember what he said? Oh, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me and all this. He says, no, it's the one that I give this bread that I'm dipping, this soft, I'm gonna give it to him. Do you know that also was a gesture of honor? That wasn't some arbitrary act. Go back and study the culture. The first person who would have got the first dip of the bread would have been the guest of honor. In this case, guess who it was? Judas. He was giving him, even in that minute, now did Jesus know he was still gonna go through with it? Yes or no? Sure he did, but he gave him the gesture, once again, even in wrath, even in knowing. Listen, the Bible even said he would be possessed by Satan in just a moment and would go out and hang himself, Judas. But just to continue, Matt, to display his character, he still showed him grace. Hey, I got one even better than that for you. Do you know what he did just moments before that? He got on his knees and he washed Judas' feet. The betrayer, the faker, the fraud, treasonous. That's grace, that's tender, that's tender mercy. And to offer him that sop was saying, I'm really giving you one more shot. I know what you're gonna do. But let it never be said that I didn't give you a way out. That marriage with Scripture doesn't, Robert. It says there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But with that temptation, let what? God will make a way of escape because he's faithful. Hit me with it. Oh, of course. Sure. Sure. Well, and and let me just say this for the people at home. What Dustin's saying is that it's kind of a catch 22 words he used is it's even if you look at people like the Roman soldiers, you look at the people like the Caiaphas, the high priest, you look at the Sanhedrin, you look at Herod, you look at Pilate. They were all a part of the process, as was Judas. And he's exactly right. But keep this in mind. That's still true today. But that doesn't mean that's God's design will for someone. Did he know that Judas would be the betrayer? Sure he did. But make no mistake about it. That wasn't just a gesture. That was still an operational form of tender mercy and grace that he extended to, to, to Judas. Can I, get one, can I go one step further for you? He offers you ways out, every, you and me both, every, every single day of our life. And you know what? Sometimes we don't take it. Sometimes we do the wrong thing. And can I tell you something? He knew you would. But it doesn't abort his grace. And the reason I'm pointing this out and taking so much time here, let's go back to what we were saying. The interlude is yet another dramatic purpose, but also showing yet again the character of mercy in doing what? And allowing one more opportunity for repentance. Doesn't mean anyone will repent hey, my goodness, go study uh, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, which means to cry. Go look at this guy's life. He was called to preach, to speak to an apostate Judah, the tribe of Judah, uh, uh, God's people who had pulled away from God. And God called Jeremiah and said, I want you to go and cry out to them and, and, and preach to them, repent. It's the same story. It's always the same. And do you know that in Scripture it tells us that Jeremiah did not have one convert. I don't know if if, <laughs> if if God said, "All right, Mark, here's the deal. Here's the plan. I want you to go start a church, and I want you to preach your heart out, but no one's coming." What? 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 what would that feel like in our life? Because that's what happened with Jeremiah. He was a young man on top of that. It it doesn't matter, and I say this loosely, so I'll qualify, but let me say it first, then I'll come back and and qualify. It doesn't matter the outcome. God is still God no matter what. Now, let me reverse that. (laughs) But God wants the outcome to be his will. But yet, because he is, and this is hard, we can't marry this with our finite minds, so you're never gonna get this. God knows what you'll choose, but you still have free will to choose. That's beyond human comprehension. He knew Judas would do what he did, yet he still gave him right, and Dustin's right. But yet, Judas was a part of the story. He was a part of the process. Somebody... Had to sell him out. Do you know why? Because prophecy said it would. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Do you know why? Micah said he would. He had to be uh, precursored by his cousin who came from Elizabeth, who was barren, that would become John the baptizer, one who cried in the wilderness. Do you know why? Because Isaiah said he would. that would be a forerunner. I say all that to say this. The the, the beauty of where we are in this life, you and I think we live in a time of uncertainty. God says otherwise. We don't live in a time of uncertainty. Well, Mark, it looks like there may be a food shortage. God has been saying this for thousands of years. And and the truth of it is, is part of what we're doing is, listen to me, not part all of what we're doing is because of our own selfishness and because of our own evilness and because now for the first time in my life, I'm seeing it play out in real time that we're living like they were in the time of Judges where now people say what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong it's become relative. In the book of Judges, it said they lived and they decided what was right in their own mind. Guys, that's where we are. I don't care, and I say this without any apology, but with love, with respect, but without apology. Listen, God says marriage is one man, one woman, period. That's it. Does it change? Because you and I think it changes. Oh, but Mark, what about this and what about this? I had a guy who is a homosexual call me one time and said, I want to meet with you. And I said, absolutely, I would love to. So he came to my office and he said, uh... This was years ago. Holy moly! This is probably been fifteen years ago. He came to my office and he said, "I heard you preach a message one time about free will and da da da." He said, "You know what? I I, I kind of have an argument." I said, "Okay, what's your argument?" He said, I, "I don't think that I chose to be who I am." He said, "I think I was born this way." I said, "Brother, we agree." He said, what do you mean? You think God created me this way? I said, no, here's the thing. The Bible tells me that you were born an enemy of God. You were born in sin. You were were brought about in sin. Can I tell you something? You and I were born with the propensity to lie, to steal, to cheat, and to pervert everything God made right. You don't believe that? Anybody have a toddler? You don't have to tell that toddler to do the wrong thing. It is innately built within them to do the wrong thing. Hey, I don't know who all this is for tonight. We're not even really in Revelation right now. This is for somebody, listen, the point I'm getting at is we can never miss the fact that even when all hell is breaking loose, even when the fullness of God's wrath is being poured out upon the earth, he's still merciful, And man still has a choice. That's why I believe even the mark of the beast. And Dustin, you hit the nail on the head. Listen, can I tell you this? Even Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are but pawns in the story of a holy God. Oh, they don't have, listen, don't don't miss this. They do not have unlimited reign. God has already declared the exactness of what they will do as it unfolds. To the point that, guess what? Even the mark of the beast or the choice not to take it still displays the grace of God. Because you may say, well, that's not true. No, it is true. With a caveat, here's the caveat. Today, I say yes, this is what we get. And this time, when they say yes to God, they're tormented day and night. They're babies. You, 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 listen, and I say this again sensitively. I don't make fun at this, but it's just the truth. You think it's bad that the shelves are empty from baby formula now? That doesn't even a lot of match to what they will go through. Famine, pestilence, hardship, Fear. Remember the tormenting of the locusts and then the ones that came behind them was even worse where they could actually kill men and sting them and harm them and torment day and night. I mean, this is unrelenting during this season. But if a person in this time frame says yes to Jesus and no to the mark of the beast because maybe they've heard it, maybe along the way they heard something about it, They will be tormented and will ultimately have to die. And we think, based upon Scripture, that they only die by way of beheading. Yet today is an interesting that we cannot, under the air condition of a building, in a padded seat, without the fear of persecution, without the fear of this demonic thing walking through the door and tormenting you, that we can't get people to say yes now. And in the sad state of that, you've heard me say this over and over and over and over again because I want you to just hear it and I want you to just let it be your heartbeat, is there is a point. I'm sure of it. Romans 1 teaches it. There is a point where God will turn you over to a reprobate mind. There's a time, Alan, where he'll say, you made your choice. That's why the Bible even tells us now, make your election what make it sure, make it known with fear and trembling right let, let, let me move I only have a few minutes I did not get far tonight okay but if but if you're di- if you're really diving into that just just say thank you Jesus. many have identified let me back up uh Roman numerals two it is as if God brought things to this brink then pull back a little to grant mankind more time to repent. And I I, I probably have a typo there parenthetically. I'm not sure exactly what I was saying, but we see a moment of grace. Oh, okay. see a moment of grace. I don't know exactly what I was saying there, but uh, amidst his holy wrath, kind of what we've been talking about. Now, I I just want to be careful with my statement that I made. I did this in college. I remember writing it, that he pulled back a little... um, Again, please don't mistake my statement there. So maybe you need to write this in the margin. When I say that it came to the brink and then he pulled back, please don't let that imply that his path and his will has shifted in the moment. That all too was, was by design. He knew he would do that. That's why he's writing it for us now, Right? So we know it now. It's truth. It's defined out in front of us. Well, what it basically is showing that time and time and time again, he brings them right to the brink, and then he, he just kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit to say, what will you do? What will you decide? And I wrote this in B. Many have identified this mighty, and again, this is conjecture. I want to lay out what people say. Many have identified this mighty angel, this messenger, as Jesus because some underline that some of the imagery also applies to him revelation for example 115 through 16 describes jesus this way his countenance like the sun shining in its strength now i wrote this down however yet angels are never underline that clearly identify with jesus in the book of revelation or in the book in the new testament Though he is clearly associated, however, in the Old Testament, as the angel of the Lord. A better indication is with the angel known as Michael. So what I'm suggesting is, is there is no question that this is a mighty angel. So we make it, attribute it to an archangel. There has been, again, conjecture that there are three archangels gabriel michael and who was the others you might know who he was lucifer and that is to some degree why he maybe thought himself to be more than he should have again that's conjecture but i do think it has merit But what I'm telling you about this in the context of it being Jesus is it does give some indications of things that have been referred to, but then I go back and follow it up with, however, I don't think the two are ever confused in the book of Revelation. Let let me ask you this. This is a great question for a Bible student in the house. Go to the Old Testament and tell me, raise your hand if you know it, how can you know when when a angel of the Lord visits one of God's people, how can you know with absolute surety that it's regular angel or it's what we call a Christophany, which is a pre-entrance, a pre-incarnate Christ on the scene as the angel of the Lord? How can you know without question which it is? I figured y'all might know, but anybody else? What do you think, Mark? I think that, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Okay. All right. I, I I don't disagree with that at all. I'd have to go back to be 100 percent sure about that. But there is a there is another way, and I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's a response by the person. Uh, what do you think? Yep. Okay. So here's the thing, and that's right. There's only a couple of cases where this was privileged. One was there, the other was in Joshua. But when an angel of the Lord, and maybe that's kind of what Mark said, but when a normal angel of the Lord came as that messenger to present some news to a person, the response of the person would be to fall down and worship. But every single time the angel was worshiped or there was that starting, they would say, No, 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 you get up. Don't worship me. There's, there, I'm not worthy of that. But you look in Joshua, for example, when it says the angel of the Lord was across the Jordan, in, standing basically in Jericho, on the cusp of Jericho, that, that Joshua saw him and he was arrayed in, in a battle attire. And he went over there and said, hey, I I don't, you know, are you for us? Are you against us? (laughs) And and he didn't say either. He said, no, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. And I love this. He says, I'm the angel of of the host or something of the Lord. Does anybody remember exactly how it was said? In any case, he knew then it it was God, it was Jesus. And he fell down and he worshiped. And guess what? He led him. So we know that if it's an angel or a Lord or the angel of the Lord, and so so we have to be careful here um, that to, 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 to subscribe that this is Jesus without knowing, because it doesn't say that, and there's indication that it's not. So I put down that it could be Michael. Whoever his exact, I mean, Roman number two under B, whoever his exact identity, clearly this angel has come from the very presence of God. And there you see that parenthetical Barclay. William Barclay is a great theologian, a great writer. Uh, So, you know, you can can dive into that if you'd like. And regardless of who he is, we know that he came from the presence of God, sent by God on God's behalf for God's voice. And he has great might and great authority. Now, let me just show you this a couple minutes left. A rainbow was on his head there and see. Not only is this rainbow a reminder of God's promise to man, but watch this, but it's also a natural result when the sun shines through a cloud. I want you to not miss this. Every single time, probably you are like me, that when you see a rainbow on a day that clouds are there and, you know, it's just a natural phenomenon, right? I mean, it is. It's natural. I mean, you could even be watering the plants, for goodness sakes, in the mist, and it'll, it'll give you a rainbow. It, so there's two, two sides to this. Don't miss this. It is simply a natural occurrence. But I never, ever, ever look past the fact that it is always, always God saying, don't forget my promises are yes and amen in me to the glory of God the Father. So in other words, it can be, I can be out there with a, what do y'all call it? a hose, What do y'all call it around here? Hose pipe. What do y'all call it? For you guys that are that are placed here in the in the in the South, what do y'all call them? Water hose? Oh, it's a hose pipe. But 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 I mean, something as silly as me watering plants and a mist forming, is still when I see that rainbow, it's like it takes it takes me a moment. It takes my breath a moment. I've seen them out here. Oh my lord, we've seen some huge ones out here. Uh, we've seen double rainbows. We've seen all kind of stuff. Um, I even have a picture in my office of a rainbow inside of a tornado, and that's kind of what this is referencing: that there is a, a a cloud, both literally and metaphorically, over the moment. There's a cloud. He says that right around his head. There's a rainbow, but the rainbow, even though it is a natural phenomenon, it's always, always, always a reminder. Of God's promise. Let me let me do one more. Um, The angel in verse two and three cries out. It says he had a little book opened in his hand, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the land, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, here is what I wrote: This little book is it the same as the scroll? that no one except Jesus could open in Revelation 5, 1 and 7. And I wrote, if one takes the mighty angel to be Jesus, then it very well could be. However, John used different words to describe the scroll in Revelation 5, 1 and the little book as it's written here. So to me, it's probably best to see them as different, yet probably closely related. So here's here's my point. I believe the little book is perhaps a shortened version Sorry, again, there's a typo. I said and, it should be a. A short version of the dispensation or disposition, I should say, of all things. The portion, watch this, that John himself will see and write about. Now let me go ahead and say this. We've got two minutes. Letter I, and then I'll answer any questions. The contents of this little book are nowhere revealed in Revelation, but they seem to represent in this vision the written authority given to the angel to fulfill his being God's mission. Now, watch this. Meaning probably some design of God long concealed, but now about to be made manifest. But we can't be sure what it means. Now, I will say this. I do know the next part. The angel's stance with one foot on the sea and left foot on the land projects his authority and dominance, authority and dominance, both over land and sea. Furthermore, his authority is either direct, and again, I just parenthetically said, if it's Jesus himself, or indirect, if this is indeed an angelic being, a messenger of God, which I believe. However, his physical stance, there in letter I, His physical stance indicates complete authority over the entire earthly situation. He has his feet on both land and sea to show that he had the command of each and that his power, watch this, was universal, all things being under him. Now, do you remember in Psalms, it says he will make our enemy what? What? Our footstool. You ever thought about that? He would make our enemy our footstool. Now, we could get arrogant. We could get braggadocious. We could even get cocky with that thought. But what the psalmist was dealing with, and we're not so much dealing with, is he was being pursued by his enemies. His sons, he had two sons that wanted to overthrow him and kill him, for goodness sakes. I mean, heck, go before that. He was. Look at what happened with Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. So so when when you read stuff in the Psalms where David is saying, hide not your face from me, O God. Let me me come into your presence. He wasn't just talking about fellowship. He was talking about divine protection, divine intervention. So when we read around, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's around Psalm 111 where he says, he will make your enemies your footstool. What he's really saying is this. Nobody has power over you that God has not allowed. So somebody that may look like they're pressing you down, keeping you at bay, you know, what have you, running over you, keep in mind, God is still sovereign over that. And what God is saying is, just hold on. Don't pump the brakes. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't think you gotta control this. Hey, can I tell you something? Don't go and try to put out every fire of testimony against you. Sometimes just let them talk. Somebody needed that, didn't they? Because let me remind you, when Jesus was condemned, he said not a word. I won't be like that. I won't be like that. Hey, if they're saying it, don't don't find yourself throwing your pearl before the swine. Let me tell you something. You don't have to argue with truth. You just need to live it out. Live out truth and let truth be a defender of truth. Because if you entangle yourself into what someone is saying about you, you simply become a party to stupidity. Because you don't have to defend it. I'm not suggesting that you're right and they're wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when somebody has false claims or somebody's just, just out there to be cruel and to be hurtful. It's not our job to go and convince everybody that we're not who they say we are. The job is that we live who God says we are. And let God sort it out. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you will help us to live that out in our faith. I know that we said so much more tonight than what was written. And so I can only know that you have spoken to your people tonight, me included. You have spoken things to me through the words that came from my mouth that I did not plan. So I know you're speaking to me. And I accept that. And I thank you for it. God, I pray that you'd help us to live in the freedom and the victory from faith to faith. And God, we just love you. We, we praise you tonight that all of this we're reading about should merely stir up our faith, and should provoke us, should, should, should challenge us to know this word and to be known by you and to let others know before it's everlasting too late. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said, amen. I look forward to seeing you guys on Sunday, 9 and 11. Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at NorthridgeThomaston.com.